Hello, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahoski. Tonight, I'm joined by my co-host and co-creator of Mythic Mission and my wife, Sarah Jahoski, who is uh, being an awesome supermom for most of today's episode, but makes a grand appearance later in the episode to share some pretty profound thoughts with Dr. David and Dr. Crystal Downing, who are our guests on Mythic Mission's 18th episode, entitled Tolkien, Lewis, and Sayers Walk Into a Pub a conversation with Dr. David and Crystal Downing. So Sarah was um, away for most of the episode, and for those of you that don't know, she was um, kind of slated to be on there the whole hour. We were doing kind of like a two uh, married couples sort of roundtable conversation on the writings of Sayers, Tolkien, and Lewis. We still were able to accomplish that, but without Sarah, sadly, for a lot of the episode, but she um, does make an appearance, as I said, a little later on, along with our daughter, Annabelle, who's going through a sleep regression. So. You'll hear a little bit of that at some point. Uh, we uh, we believe in being real here at Mythic Mission, and so we've we've left it all in there unedited. It's not distracting at all, but you'll you'll definitely see it here. Some uh, interaction with Annabelle occasionally. It's uh, it's funny. So if you're watching the YouTube edition of this episode, you'll get to see her in the background, um, just watching what mom and dad are doing late at night. I think she just wanted to stay up and see how all the magic happens. So. Anyway, it was a great episode. We had a lovely time talking with uh, Dr. David and Dr. Crystal Downing, who uh, hold chairs together um, at the Marion E. Wade Center in uh, Wheaton College, Illinois, and also are co-directors of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College. And uh, we talked to them about their books, which they've uh, published. David has published in um, C.S. Lewis Scholarship and Crystal and Dorothy Sayers Scholarship. Um, Crystal has just recently published a book, I think later uh, 2020, I feel like it came out during fall, maybe it was early this year, called Subversive. And you can find it on Amazon. It, it got a starred review, I think, in Publishers Weekly. It's a very good book. I'm just about finished with it and reading um, Into the Wardrobe by David, uh, who he wrote, he, which he wrote uh, some years ago. It's an excellent book um, on exploring the Narnian Chronicles, uh, Narnia Chronicles and C.S. Lewis's influences. So we talk a little bit about their their books, but really we're just hearing about their um, understanding of how the, the Christian faith uh, of, of course, Sayers and Lewis impacted their fictional writings in particular. We get into all sorts of great conversations. It was a lot of fun. We laughed, uh, we made jokes, and we had some pretty profound uh, thoughts, I think. So if you're going to enjoy this special episode, I think it's a great format as well to have um, Sarah and I interview um, another couple who was uh, working together for the kingdom. So we're hoping to have more like this in the future, and we'll let you know when we do. Anyway, as always, thank you for supporting Mythic Mission, and enjoy tonight's 18th episode. God bless. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Professor Jahoski here, and from Mythic Mission number, my goodness, 18 already. So tonight we have joining us uh, Dr. David Downing and his lovely wife, Dr. Crystal Downing, yeah. who uh, are co-directors of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois, where they are also co-holders of the Marion E. Wade Share in Christian Thought. David has written four scholarly books on C.S. Lewis, such as Into the Wardrobe, which I'm currently reading, which is an in-depth overview of the Chronicles of Narnia. Dr. Crystal Downing is a formerly distinguished professor of English and Film Studies at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. Crystal's most recent book on Dorothy Sayers, which was honored with a starred review in Publishers by Publishers Weekly, is called Subversive, Christ, Culture, and the Shocking Dorothy L. Sayers. Thank you both for making time this evening to be with us. It's great to be here. And uh, yes, no, I appreciate you. And Sarah, my wife, uh, hopefully will be joining us here to, to bounce some questions off both of you here. And uh, we're going to be talking tonight, and let's see what I entitled today's episode, kind of got a little creative here. Tolkien, Lewis, and Sayers walk into a pub. I'm sure that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> pretty close and to that. Pretty close. Pretty, pretty close. It's the start of a possibly a good joke and yeah. uh, in, an interview with uh, David and Crystal Downing. So uh, we're in uh, number 18 already. And um, uh, as I told you, we've got a lot of English professors on and had some really great voices contributing to this. But I just can't wait to hear uh, what you guys have to say about Lewis and Sayers and their faith and its influence on their fictional writings in particular, but feel free to drift if you want. And um, you know, if there's something in any of the, the non-fictional pieces they did, please feel free to, to speak to that. 
But what I like to do um, with every podcast is I start uh, asking what your academic backgrounds are a little bit, if, what you'd like to highlight, how you became a Christian, and especially did Sayers uh, and or Lewis or both or Tolkien have any influence on your becoming a Christian? Hmm. Well, I will start out and uh, tell you that both David and I grew up in Christian families, so we have the distinction of having our um, engagement announced in the Bible Study Fellowship newsletter because both of us had mothers who were teaching leaders in Bible Study Fellowship. So we had very solid biblical backgrounds, um, went to Christian colleges. Then I got, David got his PhD first at, at University of California in Los Angeles. I got my PhD then at the University of California in Santa Barbara. But what was... Crystal, was your team the one that went to the final four this year? Was that UCSB? UCLA? No. Oh, I'm sorry. That was UCLA. I'm sorry. I got confused. Uh-oh. That, uh -oh. that was my school that went to the final four. Sorry. <laughs> this is why I don't keep up with sports. <laughs> well, David, you should probably tell how C.S. Lewis was important to your conversion, um, even though you grew up Christian. Mm. Yes, I was raised in a uh, little church, e evangelical free in Colorado, mm -hmm. and they were good-hearted people, but they didn't seek very in-depth answers. They were content with fairly simple answers about Christian faith. Mm -hmm. When I was in third grade, I asked my teacher, what about the Navajos? They were such good people. They made pottery. They made jewelry. They were not warlike. I mean, couldn't Christ save them? And my teacher said, well, God knew who would respond to the gospel and who wouldn't. And he put all the non-responders in the new world, North and South America. And he kind of knew, because at that time, there was no way to get a, a boat across the Atlantic. Hmm. And so he thought, and so he said, basically, none of them would have responded to the gospel. And even hmm. as a third grader, I said, that's not a very intellectually satisfying answer. Mm -mm. So I asked my dad, and he said, you know, David, you just need to... Uh, trust in the character of God. He's the author of salvation. So don't worry about the logistics of salvation. Just concentrate on the author of salvation. That was a good answer for a third grader. But That's I ran right. into a lot of um, what I consider to be kind of simplistic answers growing up in my little church. And when mm -hmm. I went to college, I read Paralandra. And suddenly, mm -hmm. I didn't, I'd never read C.S. Lewis. I, didn't, I hadn't heard the name C.S. Lewis. Uh, but I suddenly found out that there was an author who was willing to use science fiction or fantasy as a vehicle to talk about theological ideas and spiritual ideas. Mm -hmm. And when I read Paralandra, I was hooked. Within a year uh, at college, I went from never having read C.S. Lewis to having read like 40 books by C.S. Lewis, literally in one year. So Lewis was a real uh, uh, turning point author for me in terms of going from a... Uh, an iffy faith that was leaning toward unfaith or loss mm. of belief into someone, I felt this is so much more exalted and so much more expansive view of Christian faith than I've had before. Yeah. So he was literally a crossways man for me or a crossroads person for me in terms of, of directing me back toward faith. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, way back when, and I've been more or less mm -hmm. a Lewis scholar since my college days because that was so... Uh, such a watershed experience for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, several things uh, came to mind there. You know, I just started reading. I know I've upset a lot of people saying this. You know, I've read Narnia. I've read so many of Lewis's nonfiction writings, but the man was was really prodigious with his writing. He wrote quite a bit. He was. He I, was. I, I never got around to the Space Trilogy, but I just, I'm, I'm probably more than halfway through Paralandra. I'm loving it. Um, right, it's, right. it's just now becoming one of my favorite books, so... Um, you know, in, I, I hope at some point uh, this evening, it comes up, uh, you know, about your, uh, your third grade experience about the, the, the fate of the unknown uh, people that, you know, we don't know that have responded to the gospel. I know this is something with my uh, background in, in Tolkien, you know, I've read a lot of Lewis as well. He was very concerned about this. I don't know if Sayers was, I don't know if she wrote anything about that, but I'd love to hear something about that a little later. But thank you for sharing um, Lewis's influence on your, your journey to faith. Yeah, sure. Krista, do you want to add something about Sayers? Yeah. Well, the transition in my faith happened when I got my first tenure track job. And it was at an Anabaptist school in Pennsylvania, Messiah College. And I had 
never encountered Anabaptists before. And of course, that's the tradition from which um, the Amish and Mennonites come. Mm-hmm. I had um, a colleague who grew up Amish and had to leave the Amish when he wanted to go beyond eighth grade um, and was now a Mennonite bishop. And I still remember the first chapel I went to after I accepted the job and the speaker was talking about a Mennonite man of God was asked, are you a Christian? And as I was sitting there, I was thinking of the way I was trained to answer that question. Yes, I'm a Christian because when I was eight years old, I asked Jesus into my heart and I was born again. Hmm. And then as I thought about that, um, the story goes on, the Mennonite man of God answered the question, are you a Christian with ask my neighbor? Mm. And I nearly fell out of my chair. I felt, mm. found that so profound. Yeah. And what happened at that moment, the trans, that moment made me realize the way I had internalized Christianity is I had turned language into a type of idolatry. So only if you use the right words are you a Christian mm. rather than, um, you know, um, following Jesus. Mm-hmm. And of course, I still believe in um, the importance of being born again and those things. But um, I realize that my I had a prejudice growing up, which a lot of more fundagelicals do, a, a prejudice against Roman Catholics, where mm-hmm. I thought, oh, they idolize statues of Mary and, yeah. you know, relics. And it was so convicting that I had idolized language. Hmm. Well, that led then to my interest in Dorothy Sayers because Sayers is someone who challenges our language. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my first book was about Sayers and now my fifth book is about Sayers. And then the other books in between are all about language and especially semiotic theory, which is the mm-hmm. science of signs. Yep. Um, and it's because of that one moment in chapel at this Anabaptist college. Mm. Very profound. And I, I saw, uh, just looking over your uh, CV, I think that there's a subtitle to one of your books. Um, I think it said, the, the medium is the message. And this is something, oh, yeah. yeah, I came, or maybe it's the title, forgive me, but I came across this in so many books that I, I read for, for researching my book. And I've found that it's a very, very uh, powerful statement, you know, especially with myth and its influence in storytelling and coming to belief. Um, but yeah, that is a very profound story that you told. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad you're here to talk about Sayers because as I told you, I, I know virtually nothing. So I'm, I'm learning so much. And, uh, you know, we, we do tend, I think, as Christians sometimes to put so much uh, in a proposition that we're saved by, you know, uh, confessing Jesus with our mouth uh, in Romans 5. Yes. But it's more than that. It, it's, it's, you know, yes. what do people say? Uh, am I following Christ? Yeah. Right. No matter how perfect my language is, if my neighbor doesn't know I'm a Christian, <laughs> exactly. what is the point? That's right. Yeah. And I, I just fear so many Christians, especially some of my students at the, the state college here, you know, it's, it's all about, well, you know, we have to be seen using the right language and have to you know, speak Christian. And I, I just, um, I'm disheartened by that. So I, I share a concern about that. And it's of course, not to say that creeds and, and statements of belief are not important, but we put sometimes far too much, uh, far too much attention in them. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and the trouble is uh, a lot of uh, people in the Protestant tradition aren't mm. even familiar with the creeds. And True. so Sayers was very emphatic that, okay, the creeds, especially the first four ecumenical councils, and this, both Lewis and Sayers had this in common, that mm-hmm. this is Christian orthodoxy, what was determined at the first four councils. Mm-hmm. And when, if you affirm that, then there is certain latitude in the interpretation and the application. Certainly. And, you know, I have to think that um, where I taught at a school where I just found profound Christians who were of... Um, um, had grown up Amish and were still very sensitive about the Amish. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Um, well, I want to, um, yeah, there's uh, so many questions that keep popping up that I uh, now want to ask, but I want to stay on track here. 
Um, let's maybe turn to start talking about myth and, and storytelling more broadly. Mythos, of course, as we're all aware, is a you know, narrative about the way things are. So this was clearly an important concept to both Sayers and Lewis and, of course, Tolkien. But I want to hear um, especially from you two about, you know, um, you know, this is making a big splash in Christian apologetics. You know, you have the works of Alistair McGrath and Holly Ordway who are writing about imaginative apologetics. I'm trying to contribute a little bit. And I, I find that in my own personal life, I burned out on too much logos, you know, too much of the rational uh -huh. side. And so many people can relate to that because we sometimes overemphasize that. Again, maybe it has to do with the language element there. But, um, you know, I know you're both familiar with the concept, but what did Lewis and Sayers and, and whatever order you want to speak to think about this concept of myth? Because I think that they tried to save it and almost re-mythologize myth, if that makes any sense for a modern oh definitely yeah uh there's propositional truth where you could state the truth in terms of a uh, subject a verb and an object <laughs> and then there's narrative truth which is you tell a story and you try to figure out what the, is the truth that is being portrayed in that story mm -hmm. uh lewis really kind of got off track by reading uh james fraser the great uh anthropologist who did uh, the Golden Bough, which said that all the world stories tend to have a lot of common themes, including the dying God myth. It could be Osiris, it could be Balder, it could be Jesus of Nazareth. And he kind of felt like, well, this is an archetype. It shows up everywhere. There's nothing special about the fact that it shows up in Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm. And then when he met Tolkien in the 20s at Oxford, uh, Tolkien and his friend Hugo Dyson said, well, yeah, that's true. That myth shows up everywhere, but let's reframe that for you. Let's say that all cultures have an intuition of the dying God, mm. the higher being who has to sacrifice himself in order to redeem the people. Uh, and so maybe they were all intuiting the need for that, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until the myth broke into history that it really became true. Mm. Suddenly, Jesus of Nazareth, he's not... Nobody knows where Osiris is buried. Nobody knows where Balder is buried. But people actually know that Jesus of Nazareth, uh, you know, in the first 30 years of the, of the new century, he was crucified and buried and, and uh, rose again. Mm -hmm. So that was a real breakthrough for Lewis. He and uh, Tolkien and Dyson, as you well know, spoke until three o'clock in the morning. Yes. And Lewis finally said, wait a minute, this, is, this would be <laughs> the most important event in human history if mythology became something that broke into the, the uh, sphere of time and space and yes. human history. So that was a huge breakthrough for Lewis and mm -hmm. suddenly went back and reinterpreted all of his view of mythology. Uh, he always said that um, you can't really capture reality in propositions. Reality is what it is. And truth is only an attempt to capture reality in statements. But he said in many ways, you can also capture reality in stories. Yep. So... Uh, Lewis literally became a Christian when he realized that the myth became fact. The dying God myth actually happened in history. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't long after his conversation with Tolkien and Dyson that he decided that he could become a Christian. He could affirm this as historical truth as well as true myth. Yes. And went on to have one of the most remarkable careers of the 20th century in terms of trying to decide what that meant for Christians yeah. and what that meant for culture in general. Certainly. Yeah, I, I know he spoke, I think it's in his uh, Myth Became Fact essay, and then is Theology Poetry, both of them, that right. uh, I think it's in the former that we mustn't be ashamed of our the mythical radiance that rests upon our theology. Right. And I, I think right. so many Christians and end up, you know, thinking, oh, if we say it's a myth that this is gonna, this is gonna hurt our witness. And so I think right. this is really critical. And it's interesting that you say, that, you know, Dyson and Tolkien have kind of used an argument that's traditionally used to disprove Jesus right. and to show how this is just like any other, it's a Jewish archetype, you know, right. like that one's a Hindu one, this is that. Um, and he used it almost, well, not almost, exactly the reverse to show it as a, an example for the truth of, of Christianity. So right. there's Lewis a lot going on the point there. That there was no, in the Old Testament, there's no archetype of the dying God. They're, they're not expecting God to come to earth at all because they're not into the idea of the transcendent God becoming human being. Mm -mm. And so he says, of, of the least likely places for the dying God myth to become history, uh, you know, Judaism would be the least likely place to look for that. Uh, so yeah. that was yeah. another argument 
for the truth of Christianity. He says reality mm. isn't predictable. It isn't regular. Uh, it has a kind of weird uh, um, aspect of being surprising and wonderful. And he said, well, this is it. This is this myth broke into history at the least likely place. Yes. So that yes. was a huge starting point for Lewis. And as you know, with Tolkien, uh, that was kind of, in a way, I think that was one of the foundational moments in their friendship, is to realize together mm -hmm. that this mythology became history. Yes, I quite agree. Um, so did Lewis ever, do we know that, did Lewis talk to Sayers about this? Was Sayers on her own interested in, in myth in some way? Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. because it relates to my, um, my own faith transitional moment about mm. recognizing the idolatry of language yes. insofar as C.S. Lewis identifies as one of the most profound influences on the strengthening of his spiritual life. Mm. He, the BBC radio broadcasts um, of the life of Jesus that was that were written by Dorothy Sayers mm. and broadcast 1941-1942. But oh, what's wow. interesting about it, so here, you know, when we read the Narnia Chronicles, mm -hmm. Lewis is being nurtured by Dorothy Sayers' presentation of Jesus. But as she's presented it, she recognizes the power of narrative to mm. get us to think in new ways. Mm. So she presents the gospel message. She doesn't change the gospel message about the death and resurrection, Jesus and his miracles and, and all that. But then mm -hmm. she provides narrative transitions to contextualize things. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But yeah. another thing she did, because she recognized the power of narrative to really break through to what Lewis says, you know, to sneak past watchful dragons mm -hmm. but the trouble is in her day the watchful dragons were especially fiery mm -hmm. because yeah. when there was a press conference to announce the first of the 12 plays it came out in the press conference because she read a snippet from one of her plays it came out that these radio plays did not use king james english that's right i remember reading that yeah Huh. Furthermore, some of the disciples, she had speak slang. Mm. Worse, some of it was American slang. Oh, yes. Oh, God, that's the worst. This was actually a headline in a paper. Wow. Um, plays about Jesus in American slang. Talk <laughs> about the idolatry of language yeah. that these Christians rose up in protest. They demanded that the BBC censor these plays. They wrote letters to Winston Churchill and the Archbishop of Canterbury demanding that these plays not be broadcast. It wow. actually was discussed on the floor of parliament. That no is kidding. how huge the scandal was. I don't remember catching that detail. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's and incredible. Was there a line, Crystal, that, that somebody said the atonement is so groovy? Was that in uh, <laughs> no, that the No. And it makes she her goal was to show that the people who um, lived at the time of Christ, who followed Christ, who killed Christ are like us. Mm. And um, the irony, God works in mysterious ways, is that because of this incredible scandal, I mean, this um, it's discussed in Parliament. And she got hate mail from Christians. Mm. She got nasty phone calls. Um, but because of that, all these kind of cynics and non-Christians listened to the radio plays, which were on the religious programming channel. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in their lives, they understood the gospel message because Sayers refused the idolatry of language. And... Um, and we can see Lewis, of course, um, he has a sacrificial lion, you know, mm -hmm. talk about changing the story, but it's still the truth. He captures yes. the truth with narrative. And so Sayers was still telling the gospel story, but by narrativizing mm -hmm. details and refusing to use King James English, 
she got thousands of letters. I can't in believe fact, she that. wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis saying, I have gotten thousands of letters oh from God. people saying that they've, um, for the first time in their lives, they started reading the Bible, that mm. they had um, returned to the faith, that they, they had started um, going to church because she, and she refused to back down, even though mm. she was getting hate mail. She got Good one postcard that said, you nasty old sourpuss. But really? she just was committed to the gospel message. That's such a powerful example for our own day uh, that we need to stand our ground about things and, and, and with gentleness and respect. Um, I want to uh, say a couple things just real quick for our audience, because I don't think I've spoken about this here on Mythic Mission, but in, in my research, I've come across a distinction that's very helpful. I think you both will appreciate this between subversion, which of course is subversive, the title of your book, and syncretism. Because I know in my textbook for Western humanities, I teach my students, I have to I have to unteach and then reteach, you know, this section right. about Mithraism and syncretism. And it's a bold term in our textbooks. And I go, listen, this is this is one possible understanding, but subversion is telling one narrative in terms of another narrative. I would mm -hmm. say that's what Sayers and Lewis and Tolkien were doing. But yeah. syncretism is combining two narratives and having them kind of mishmash together. I mean, I think there's a fine line, but um, I think it's very powerful, you know, that we also consider something else uh, that I don't think I've spoken about here either, supposals, because this is what Lewis called the, the non-allegory, you know, and I think, and I've talked about this several times, but I, I think many people give Lewis too hard a time. He had a very similar understanding to allegory that Tolkien did. I don't think people have read a lot of Lewis's letters, but he was very adamant against it and spoke instead of supposals. And it sounds like that's what Sayers had, had done and you know, recontextualizing things, transposing it into a different environment that seemed a little strange, but was still, you're still, you know, like you said, you're not changing anything. It's not like she you know, taught something uh, antithetical. And I think that, re, uh, you know, that, that transposition, uh, I know that Lewis spoke about too, is yeah. very, very powerful stuff. So yeah. that's good. Yeah, Lewis was very uh, careful in choosing the word supposal Yes. Because he didn't, he actually did write allegory. He loved uh, yeah. the Spencer yeah. and Pilgrim's Progress and other allegories, where there's kind of a one to one correspondence between the physical character and mm -hmm. the idea or the. But he didn't, uh, and he did write uh, Al, uh, Pilgrim's Regress, which is allegorical. This character represents Freud, this character represents D.H. Lawrence. But when it came to his more serious imaginative works, he liked that word supposal. Suppose that God came to redeem a planet, but not as a human, but as a lion. And that's not allegorical. That's not symbolic. It's a supposal. It's a great right. word. He invented a new genre. Yes. And I'm sure you're sympathetic with Tolkien saying, I'm not doing allegory here. No. Uh, Soron <laughs> is not Hitler. Uh, Theremin is not Mussolini. So uh, he yeah. talked, about, uh, as you know, Tolkien said, I despise allegory, both real or feigned. I would rather have real history. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would rather have an imaginative history than to have an allegory. Yep. Um, so yep. you should probably speak a little bit about Tolkien because they were on the same, in a way they were on the same page in terms of not mm -hmm. wanting a lot of fantasy with one-to-one -one correspondences. Sure. But was more audience-centered. I hope this affects my readers this way. Mm -hmm. It was more like I just need to create this secondary world, which is so substantial and coherent in itself. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to worry about how the reader responds. So you should probably uh, take a moment yeah. talking as opposed to uh, saying. Sure, and I would. I would say this probably applies, especially uh, to what Crystal was speaking about with the use of language. Um, in my research, I read a great book. Uh, Gisela Kreglinger wrote a book called uh, Storied Revelations. I think it's about uh, George MacDonald's writings. And she talks about the difference between metaphorical language and allegorical language. And I think what was important, and, and to quote one of Tolkien's letters, I forget which one, letter 180 something, he says, it's the way that truth is reflected in and, and exemplified in the ancient device of presenting something in an unfamiliar embodiment. Something to that extent mm -hmm. is what he says. And, uh, you know, for the elucidation of, of truth and morals, but not as we know them explicitly in the real world. And what I, what I, uh, what I came to discover is an allegory is, of course, going to have allegorical language. It's going to be very, very clear, 
very transparent one for one. And the, this is what I found really interesting. Uh, Kreglinger said that it's uh, allegory's job to remind you of what you already know. And, and that is not what Lewis Sayers or Tolkien are trying to do. They're trying to refresh and even maybe teach something new. Metaphorical language. Now, most people I think don't really see much of a difference, at least in my experience, they're like, oh my God, what's the myth, allegory, metaphor? They're all the same to me. Well, I always understood metaphor is this for that, but that's not what these scholars have said. Metaphor is more suggestive, kind of teases implications. It's not a substitutionary kind of this for that. Mm -hmm. And I think they delighted in um, putting something on the table and then taking it away as I had one uh, person I, I did an interview with described it, which I, I, it just stuck with me. I'm like, yeah, that's right. They, they show their cards and then they kind of, you know, hide them again. And it's kind of teasing the reader and the audience, as you were saying, and affecting us in a way that lures us into participation in the story. And that's the most important part, because if we don't participate in the drama of Christ and we don't treat it as a story that really happened, then we can't, we can't really understand anybody unless we step into their story. So right. to me, that was the big, there's Sarah or Lucas. <laughs> hi, Lucas. Oh, hi. <laughs> So glad you could come on. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Ta-da! How'd she do? I'm so sorry. Annabelle's actually sitting back here reading books because oh. I still can't to go to sleep. She... So compromised. Have she... you tried chloroform? Does that work at all? <laughs> a little bit. We we've tried we've tried it's it's not been successful. Um, <laughs> nothing is going to keep this kid down. So it's funny because she heard us say. She sure to say that we uh, were doing an interview earlier. She's like, oh, I want to watch it. And so I think it's, it's you know, it's coming true. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, just, I was just telling David and Crystal about um, the, the big revelation between metaphorical and allegorical language and, and how for, for Lewis and, and Tolkien, we were talking about supposals before that and, and myth, you know, that it, to, to impact the audience and, and teach them something new about a subject that they already know. And if you're a Christian, and you know Christianity, or you claim to know it. I'm sure, uh, Crystal, you'll, you'll speak to this a little bit more too with subver subversiveness of Sayers' uh, work. You know, you have to really get underneath that person and kind of, you know, sap their worldview because they're very confident that they, they've heard the parables, they know about Jesus, they can't learn anything new, it's old news. But it's amazing how much more we can learn through these writings of the Inklings. So. Well, modernism is very anti-allegory. They don't like the idea of, uh, they like the idea of open-ended meanings. They want, yes. uh, when you read Pilgrim's uh, Progress, the giant is named despair. So you go, oh, I guess that big guy is a symbol of despair. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit, uh, it's not hermeneutically interesting to just tell somebody what the giant represents. Now, Lewis, even though he liked Pilgrim's Progress and other allegories, he liked Spencer's Fairy Queen. Mm -hmm. He said in uh, the, uh, uh, what's the, the Weight of Glory, that in the way the gospel is like the scent of a flower you've never smelled or seen, it's news from a country you've never visited. Mm -hmm. So he realized there was something open-ended about symbolism mm -hmm. that was more evocative, because we really can't imagine heaven. We can't imagine... What is Christ doing? Is he sitting on a throne? What's it like to spend eternity with Christ? Mm. And he really doesn't want to try to pin that down because anything you say becomes a New Yorker cartoon with clouds and harps and, and halos. And so he wisely says, let's keep that open-ended. Let's just mm -hmm. suggest what it might be like to be one with beauty, to spend the rest of your life not just looking at beauty, mm -hmm. but becoming immersed in beauty so he ultimately felt when it came to transcendent realities, you don't want to go for allegory. You mm -hmm. want to go for symbolism. Yep. Ironically, as you know, Tolkien didn't like allegory because he thought it was too one-to-one. Uh, -one. Mm -hmm. But he wrote a beautiful story called Leaf by Niggle, which is pretty <laughs> obviously allegorical. The character is him, and he seems to go to purgatory and go through mm -hmm. a lot of uh, purification, and he ends up in paradise. So... There's kind of a, it's not really uh, a clear barrier between allegory, close-ended hermeneutics, and symbolism, open-ended. In some ways, both of them realize it's more of a continuum. Mm -hmm. In some ways, you don't want to be way allegorical, but you want to suggest enough that people really understand 
what you are talking about, what you're evoking. Exactly. So they both wrote very good allegories and they both, both wrote very good symbolism. Mm -hmm. Probably jumping in talk said. a little bit about your concept of parable and why you think that that's the best way to describe what Tolkien is doing. Yeah, um, I, I will just briefly to say that I think everything that I've said here about the difference between the use of allegorical language and metaphor, metaphorical language falls on that spectrum. And I talk about the spectrum in, in my book. And I think a parable is somewhere right where we want it to be in the middle. It's just evocative and suggestive enough, uh, you know, in, in equal measures. And it's it's a give and take of the parables. And in my reading of a lot of New Testament scholarship books, this is how I've heard uh, people like uh, uh, Brad Young and Craig Blomberg uh, and uh, Amy Jill Levine talk about parables. It's, it's, it's give and take and conceal and reveal. And I think that's exactly what Lewis's definition of symbolism is. And it, it's, it's quite, of course, going to have some allegorical teases in it, but it's just in there enough to lure you into participation. And then the, the twist, according to what I found, is that metaphorical punch where, you know, you, you come tantalizingly close to, okay, this is really suggestive of what we know to be the Christian truth. And, and so I think um, there's, there's one great reason, one last thing I'll say um, is that I found, and I found that not a lot of Tolkien scholars had written very much about it. And I've asked a few, I had Joseph Pierce on the show recently. I don't think we got a chance to talk about it, but in his collection, Tolkien, a celebration, there's an essay from 1992 by father Robert Murray who was a friend and confidant of Tolkien right, in the, right. you know. Yeah, that's in that anthology, right? Yeah, yeah, Tolkien and the Art of the Parable. And I came across it and I said, you know, I always felt like that's the right word for it. But I know that Tolkien didn't want to use it because it would, to a lot of, you know, misinformed audiences probably say, oh, that's the same as an allegory. And then it would be mm. all gone from there. So I think <laughs> it's basically this, that, you know, Tolkien really, um, and I think Lewis too, in his own way, imitated Jesus's art of storytelling, uh, which I think, right. you know, obviously he right. laid down first. So, well, as you say in your book, even the parables, there tends to be another continuum from heavily allegorical to somewhat evocative and suggestive, but not necessarily hermeneutically clear. Exactly. In the prodigal son, we can pretty much tell the younger son screwed up, made a mess of his life, came back very humbly and said to his father, will you forgive me and take me back in even as a slave? Mm -hmm. And the older son seems to be uh, the more or less legalistic uh, uh, son who's always done what he's supposed to do. And he resents the fact that somebody else could get in on grace rather than on earning it. That mm -hmm. seems very allegorical. But yeah. other parables like the, uh, the woman who, or the unjust steward mm -hmm. who decides to uh, tell all the clients, hey, I'll give you a percentage on your payback to my master. You're, you're not quite sure what those characters represent. Who's the master? Who's the steward? Who are the people who are owed money? And That's so confusing. even within the parables, there's a continuum from the pretty clearly allegorical to the symbolic, suggestive, metaphorical. But you can't quite pin down the spiritual meaning of the, of the heavenly story. And I think <laughs> it, it's best that way. I really do. Right. I, I, it's right. at least impacted me very powerfully. So. <laughs> Uh, Crystal, did you want to talk a little bit about Sayers uh, and uh, how she integrated her faith? And I had a question for you just before you start and talk about whatever you'd like, but she, was she Catholic or Anglican? No. Okay. She was born to an Anglican clergyman. Okay. So she was, um, she called herself Anglo-Catholic. So very high church Anglican, but she, in her youth, she tended to compartmentalize her Christianity, which you see with a lot of children of, of Christians and ministers. So she never renounced her faith, but she wasn't mm -hmm. that concerned about integrating it into her life. And it wasn't until middle age that she had a, a transformative moment, kind of like my moment, sitting in the chair and hearing about a Mennonite man of God. Um, she was asked to write a play or, because of course she was famous for Lord Peter Whimsey detective novels. And she's quite um, emphatic that Peter Whimsey is not a Christian. He's not interested in being a Christian. He loves the beauty of church um, architecture and liturgy, but he is not religious. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, she just didn't want to make him religious. 
And then when she was asked to write a play for Canterbury Cathedral, she was forced to really think about the relationship between theology and the arts because the play was supposed to be about the history of the cathedral performed in the cathedral. Mm. So you have to think about this is a great work of art built to celebrate Jesus Christ. And um, how do I think about what I am doing in my life? And that after she wrote um, Zeal of Thy House, she never published another detective novel. And it totally oh. took her in the direction of um, Christian apologetics and mm. using her myth-making ability to communicate the, um, the gospel message. Mm-hmm. But the thing I wanted to pick up on, I loved how you said that many people have a mistaken idea of metaphor, and you use the phrase this for that, mm-hmm. which is kind of what allegory is, you know, mm-hmm. this for that, the giant of despond mm-hmm. uh, or despair. Um, and that is a key concept that Sayers is trying to subvert at, um, through her writings. And it is something that she educated me about. And I encountered the same thought in a famous, probably the most influential philosopher of the 20th century, Jacques Derrida, Mm. talks about how um, most humans operate according to an economy of exchange, because that's Mm. the way language works. You give a word like hair, you get mm-hmm. an idea in exchange. Mm-hmm. And because language is about exchange, most religions are about exchange. It's this or that. Yes. So um, go through this ritual, you get heaven. Mm. Um, say this prayer, you are saved. Mm-hmm. Believe this um, doctrine and you um, avoid hell. Mm-hmm. And it as soon as you reduce it and that that's the way all religions work so um what makes christianity distinctive and i use sayers to argue how simplistic anyone is who says that well all religions lead to the same god no Mm -hmm. all religions except for christianity as far as i know Mm -hmm. um operate according to this economy of exchange, except Christianity, which is about a gift. Mm -hmm. It is a gift. And of course, belief is necessary because how do you accept a gift unless you believe it's been offered to you? Right. But that's different than thinking, ooh, I don't want to burn in hell. I better believe this thing. This, yeah. Exchangeism, I remember reading in your book, and that's a term that has really stuck in my mind as as I continue to read. Now I'm seeing it everywhere. And, and this is something Sarah's really wanted, as you said, to subvert. Sarah, I think you would really uh, like to, to read subversive after I'm finished. And I, I realize, honey, I've, I've got them talking about a lot of the questions I wanted you to ask. So if you have some questions of your own, you might want to uh, see if you have any. I just want to make sure you get a chance to, to, to contribute because I know you, uh, Sarah was going to do the, the questioning. So um, if something comes up, but I, I really think you'd enjoy it because we both grew up with kind of an exchange. I mean, I, I was, uh, I had a loose Roman Catholic upbringing and, you know, that was looking back. That was my understanding is that you do this, you get something back. And it's interesting how that plays into what we said about language. And uh, so I'm glad I'm not alone. I, I told somebody, uh, I can't remember who it was, that, you know, as I'm learning that other people are thinking along the same lines, I feel a little less crazy because I thought as I was writing, you know, Sarah knows, I'm sure you both have experienced this. I wonder if anybody else has seen this or am I going to really look like a fool for saying this? But um, yeah, it's, it's, such a, it's such a bad idea. And I really, uh, maybe we should talk about the atonement too because it was just Easter, of course. And uh, this is something that uh, you write about in your book, Subversive, where you talk about that it's not just a purely substitutionary theory, not just Christus Victor. It's, I think you say it's kind of an amalgamation of, of the two. Um, well, um, how Sayers presents it, and I think she's quite accurate, is um, the atonement, our understanding of how the atonement work changes as our context changes. Mm-hmm. And um, 
C.S. Lewis was um, quite direct about this and David, you'll have to fill in. He said, the important thing is not to figure out how it works. Mm -hmm. It's to know that we have been offered this gift. And see, the trouble is, Christians have reduced the atonement to exchangeism. Yes. Um, like um, Tyndale coined the word, um, he was influenced by Wycliffe, but Tyndale coined the word, and it just means at one meant. Mm-hmm. But Christians use it to say, oh, you have to atone for your sins, right. which is this for that. Yep. It's economy of exchange. And it's amazing how often fundamental doctrines that are essential to Christianity that are part of the ancient creeds get warped into exchangeism because that's the way our brains work. And I have to, I see it happening into myself. If something horrible occurs to me one day, I go, my first thought is, oh, I didn't have devotions this morning. I wonder if that's why it happened to me. It's, it's, and, and then I, I you know, I want to slap myself and say, <laughs> yeah. God doesn't, that's, that's yeah. the way world religions operate. Yep. That God and Christianity is different than yeah. other religions. That's right. And when that's why we have the book of Job, it's saying you're suffering mm-hmm. horribly, but it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. These are the cards you were dealt or else you're an experiment of Satan. But I think it's a huge Old Testament statement that you shouldn't blame suffering on bad behavior. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, natural to try to have this kind of mechanism in your life of uh, a good living leads to a good life or a good afterlife. And I sure. kind of earned it. And the yeah. doctrine of grace pretty much blows that away. Yep. When uh, I was growing up in my little EV free church, we had a yellow vinyl record by Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. And mm. one of the songs was, if you don't go to Sunday school, you'll grow up to be bad. So that was sort of what uh, I was taught. But not not going to Sunday school, you would grow up being a criminal or a drug salesman or something. That's uh, simple. It's a very natural impulse to try to use religion as a, uh, a mechanism to control your life and say, if sure. I live good, I will. I, my life will be good. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. The fact that Jesus and Paul and Peter and so many were executed and martyred, it's kind of saying that's not really how it works. You can not have quite. A really great life, and yeah. the world won't recognize what you're talking about, and you will end sure. up suffering a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Good point. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Here is one of the brilliant things that Sayers did in her radio plays mm. to communicate. <clears throat> That salvation is a gift, not because of works, lest anyone should boast. And when she writes up the scene of the two thieves on the cross, Mm -hmm. we all know about the penitent thief and um, Jesus telling him, today you will be with me in paradise. And the way it's usually communicated is, oh, he believed and he got salvation. And it it was exchange. Oh, good thing he got that belief in at the last moment. The players were just so emphatic about this that she actually has the penitent thief um, feeling sorry for Jesus and thinking he's kind of lunatic, crazy. And he tells the the other thief, he says, come on, the guy's guy's crazy. He actually thinks he's God almighty. And so out of compassion for this kind of crazy Jesus um, mm. on the center cross, um, the penitent thief says um, uh, something about the fact um, I, I'm sure what you're doing is really important. And then um, Jesus actually says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm. And Sayers actually writes into the script, the into the stage directions where the penitent thief goes, <gasps> what you're not crazy wow and i i and he confesses his sin to jesus and the implication being jesus offered him the gift of salvation there and the thief accepted it Mm -hmm. so she even goes that far to try to subvert this Mm -hmm. way 
turned Christianity into just like every other religion where you just got to do something, say something, go through a certain ritual and yeah. you get your salvation. That's a, that's extremely powerful. Sarah, I saw you had yourself unmuted a minute ago. Did you want to say something? Um, yeah, but I lost it all. <laughs> It'll come back to me. You mean you're tired or something? Have you, have you been <laughs> preoccupied with something no. upstairs? No. Oh, no, what I was going to say was, um, and we, uh, Dr. Downing was talking about, we see suffering is not caused by, you know, oh, I must have done something bad, therefore I'm suffering. But we also see the alternative of that. We see like, there are bad people that are really prospering in the world. And right. I think that, that that's a, something too we think about, but but they're the ones who are doing this and that. So, I mean, our thoughts about suffering is kind of, it's all turned upside down when we really think that it's not based on what people do or don't do, because we see wicked people prospering and righteous people suffering. So. Right, right. That's a profound thought. There's that yeah. question in the Old Testament, why do the wicked prosper? Mm. And it's kind of assuming if you're wicked, you're going to suffer. It doesn't work. Sure. But they're kind of going, why isn't the economy exchanged? Crystal, isn't there a verse in the Old Testament that says, why don't they understand Derrida's paradigm of the economy <laughs> of exchange? It doesn't work. Maybe so that's uh, ex Exodus uh, twenty something. Yeah, somewhere in there. Somewhere, somewhere. And of course, a lot of the Old Testament, mm. they are thinking into exchanges purposes. Sure. But I think that's why we need to read the Old Testament because without the Old Testament, you don't recognize how incredibly radical Jesus was. Yeah. Jesus yeah. was doing something. No wonder he got crucified. Yeah, he was overturning just the um, smug assumptions of thousands of years of religion. But mm. also, what I love about the Old Testament is that as you go through, you see these little moments where they're slowly recognizing yep. the truth. And yes. of course, Job yes. is is one right. of those moments, and the Psalms. David, uh, wisdom literature, yeah. I'm reading a book by uh, not by Lewis or Tolkien or Dorothy <gasps> Sayers, by Fleming Rutledge. And she yeah. says, fiction was Paul starts out saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Mm. And she says, Why does he have to say that? Because normally, mm. if you're saintly, you go to heaven in a chariot, you're translated, you know, life is wonderful, death is mm. easy. And she's saying, no, this guy was uh, hung up on a cross and humiliated and crucified. And he was naked. Mm -hmm. And Paul has to say, no, I'm not ashamed of that. That's really the most important thing about uh, the death of Christ was that yep. he did it for all of us. Nobody says, I'm not ashamed of uh, Confucianism. I'm not ashamed of Plato. I'm not ashamed of Muhammad. Yep. Uh, so I love the fact that she says the whole gospel begins in shame and self-emptying and self-humiliation. We always yep. just say, wow, how do I take up my cross? How do I reenact that humiliation in order to become the person I need to be? Yeah. So I really would recommend this book by Fleming Rutledge. I realize that normally there's a canon at the Wade Center. We have seven authors who have spoken to every possible issue, including all Christian dilemmas. Mm. But occasionally I do recommend somebody else besides our seven authors. Yeah, I know those are usually the only ones that exist in our minds, but uh, you know, we have to sometimes remember there are other people that write books. Right. Uh, I, I know Fleming Rutledge's uh, work. She's got a book on the crucifixion. I've downloaded a sample that uh, caught my eye. Uh, and I've read her, of course, you know, back to Back to Tolkien, I've read her Battle for Middle-Earth book, which was published some time ago. Right, um, right. But she's written a lot of serious uh, theological books as well. So um, what's that one called? Do you, do you have it? It's just time? called the, the Crucifixion. Oh, that's she the one. Oh. That, um, the manner of Christ dying, it's the only uh, famous person in history where the manner of their dying becomes the major point. Nobody mm. says of Kennedy, oh, the, the assassination. That was right. the day that Kennedy got shot, or Marie Antoinette. Oh, that mm. was the guillotining. Yeah. But the crucifixion was so horrible and so humiliating. The very manner of his death becomes the word for how he died. Mm -hmm. So she definitely uh, invites you. In fact, she actually says, what, uh, in distinction to what Chris was saying, she says, Christianity is the anti religious religion where mm. it's not about. Uh, some kind of mechanism of control, whereas if I do what God wants, then he has to treat me well. Right. She says, no, it, it totally explodes that notion 
that religion is a mechanism of control. In sure. some ways, if we have penicillin, why do we need prayer? You know, mm. in some ways, if we have some mechanism of getting rid of this illness, why do we pray about it? And I love that idea that Christianity is kind of the anti-religious religion in terms of totally turning the normal reasons people turn to religion, turns it on its head and says, sure. hey, do you want to be a Christian? How about taking up the cross? How about suffering? Yeah. <laughs> That's ego. Yeah. It's, it's not really that uh, enticing of a sales pitch for Christianity. No, no. I just I just recorded a little Easter thing the other day, actually. Uh, not quite little. I, I really went to town. It was uh, had a lot on my mind. And, and this is one of the things that I, I said is that, you know, why would the evangelist lie about something they weren't expecting to happen, like double, but they weren't expecting the Messiah to most were not expecting a divine messiah most were not expecting in fact nobody was expecting as far as i am aware a, a divine dead messiah uh one setting aside his you know prerogatives right. and then no one was expecting anybody to rise ahead of the rest of humanity and jewish second temple jewish thought right. and then they have the audacity to embarrass themselves as you know in a jewish culture by including so many embarrassing features in the gospels <laughs> right and yet you think that they're lying about this and then we could go on it's ridiculous and and uh, this this anti-religion you know religion is is a great idea because my students are always saying you know why does it have to be christianity why can't it be buddhism or islam that's the the myth became fact you know and i said well that's a great question, but we've got to talk about, you know, a lot of things. And, and this is one of the key distinctions that you both have raised that, you know, there's an economy of exchange in a lot of these other, you, you give something, you get something. And there's also nothing explosive, explosively controversial about Confucius, really. And uh, people say, well, you know, well, that's a big deal. I'm like, yes, it's a big deal. But Confucius wasn't claiming to be the son of heaven. He wanted the son of heaven to come to earth. But, you know, it's interesting that, but uh, it's it's a really great world religion sort of topic there that you know. Yeah, that, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I can't imagine Peter saying, "Get in the part where I betrayed Christ three times. Make sure yeah. you get in all three times." Underline know? that. Yeah. <laughs> like I was really, I was really. You want it. to tell if you're trying to uh, propagate no. a new religion, right? No, not at all. Yeah, it's it's silly, but uh, you know, we we understand. We we've all had our doubts and and questions, and so I. I think it's it's to be encouraged, but it's like we're we're in living in an age where we're claiming for evidence, and then, well, I don't want that evidence. I want the empirical evidence, and we, we treat some kinds of evidence as as higher than others. And I think a lot of our job as Christians today is just helping people sort through how to think again, how to think right. critically, and and to right. distinguish between these things, and uh, not to replace science with faith or vice versa, but to show that these things aren't antithetical and there's so much work to be done. And, you know, of course, Lewis and Sayers and Tolkien knew that there was a lot of undergrowth to clear out before one could right. really get to the gospel. So. Well, I think that, um, I think that's why progressive Christianity is kind of thriving in our culture is that, you know, you mentioned that it's not, uh, not, a, not, not a nice sales pitch to be like, Hey, come be a Christian and you're going to suffer and you're going to be persecuted. And you're, you know, it's not going to be easy. Take up your cross, but progressive Christianity is making mm -hmm. it easier for people to be Christian. So you think you can, you can have everything that you want and it's just a nice easy religion and mm -hmm. i think people don't people like that in this society and people don't really want to think critically and i think we're up against that that difficult you know battle that's a really great point sarah yeah it, it's it's uh you know everybody's welcome and, and of course that's important but the the intellectual aspect of our faith is not demanding just pray about it you know um, everything's gonna be okay you know, let's have coffee. I mean, churches are becoming more like, you know, cafes and, and I'm not poo-pooing coffee at church or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's becoming more of a social club. And so I think it's, it's well said, uh, some, some churches are, and it's just, it's easier to get in and easier to stay because nobody's challenging them and, you know, don't get any uh, controversial conversations with people of other religions. And yeah, it's, it's definitely easier to, to kind of, you know, throw yourself behind that. For sure. Yeah, I'm actually I'm reading uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, 12 Rules of Living. He's not a Christian, nope. but he says it's more important to have a life with meaning than have a life with happiness. Yes. He's basically, he's not coming from a Christian point of view, but he's saying you need to figure out what the meaning of your life is rather than to say, how can I be happier? And in many ways, once you find meaning, 
you'll be happier sort of as a byproduct of feeling like your life has meaning. First things and first. I'm this this uh, dovetails beautifully with Christianity. There's no promise mm-hmm. that you're going to be healthy, happy, not persecuted. Uh, but it's just saying, if you know the meaning of your life, if you know why you're on earth, if you know what you are trying to accomplish, which has become um, you know, more and more in the image of Christ, mm-hmm. you may not be happy on this day or that day, but you all, your life always has meaning, your journey has meaning. And it's fascinating to me that even non-Christian thinkers are pretty much saying a Christian way of looking at the world is a meaningful way of looking at the world and it's something that yes. will last through your whole life. Mm-hmm. That's well said. Sayers talks about um, a delicate balance between this, the absolutizing of tradition and holding on to tradition for its own sake, kind of mm-hmm. like the people who were outraged that she didn't use King James English. Right. And then the other extreme is the absolutizing of progress to go back to what Sarah said. So how do you strike that balance between those two without falling one side or the other? And it is staying balanced is part of the suffering because you're going to get attacked from both sides because people just want you to fall down, join them, you know, just kind of join the club on on one side or the other and um i um think i argue that she recognizes this as a both and christianity Mm. that is predicated upon a both and savior jesus fully human and fully divine yeah yeah that's that's a, a distinction that I think a lot of people, uh, even in the church, are having a hard time. That you know, Christianity is a is a Near Eastern or you know an ancient Near Eastern Middle Eastern religion, and that thinking in two hands is something that you know people are writing about a lot in getting into the Jewish roots of thinking and this idea that both and is not a contradiction, and and we have to try to understand Christianity as a series of paradoxes about reality because that's. That's how it's faithful to reality, because reality is, is slightly mysterious. We live in shadowlands, as Lewis said. So I think our thinking needs to reflect that. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, going back to, you know, striking a healthy balance with the progressives and the attachment to, you know, continuing uh, reframing of the faith and then the tradition on the other end. It's, it's a constant battle. Um, and it's very well said. So I know um, we have a, a, a fifth guest <laughs> in and out she's busy she i don't know what she's doing she keeps i hear foots you know bed for later when she's on the floor i think think people are gonna love this it's like everybody's they're not gonna be listening to us they're gonna be what's what's she doing i said she had my pillow i'm like what are you doing with my pillow come on annabelle i love you um so i i think maybe now's a time for closing remarks I, i i think this is this has been one of my favorite episodes i'm sorry to our previous guest but this has been great. I'd love to keep on talking, but um, maybe we can uh, wrap up. Is there anything you think we've left unsaid that needs to be said for, for this hour that we've spent? I mean, any uh, closing remarks? One of those things where we could probably go on for another hour. <laughs> so there's just so much to talk about in terms of Sayers Lewis, and Tolkien. Yeah. And, yeah, I um, wish we gave you more time to talk about Tolkien writing parables, because most people think... Okay. Uh, parable sounds a little too much in terms of the message rather than the story. Preaching, but in yeah. general, I love the fact that we have these three different authors. They mm. all love the Lord. They all want to use their art as a means of, of giving a, a gift to Christ. Mm. And I just love the idea that all three of them, uh, Paul said, we're the aroma, to Christ, aroma of Christ to those who are perishing. And I feel like in many ways, every Christian artist is trying to create a fragrance that will make people say, what is that? That's important. I want to know more about that. That's so beautiful. I love the fact that all of our authors, despite their different methods, they mm-hmm. were all trying to communicate the fragrance of Christ to those that are perishing. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Yes. I quite agree. Um, I just had a thought, but um, it, it went out the, uh, the, other, the other end there. So the... Um, the, the thing about Tolkien and parables, I had a, a final thought to share, but I think uh, what I what I point some of our listeners to who may, because uh, I know some, some people stumble onto most recent episodes that 
I've spoken a little bit about it uh, in in previous episodes on Mythic Mission, and and of course I've written a book about it. Uh, but it's it's definitely more about the medium than the message, is what I would come back to saying. Is that it's it's very important. Jesus almost wanted to to I think he did say, didn't he? He said, uh, yeah, I, I speak to you in parables, and uh, and then the gospel. Um, uh, I think it's Mark who maybe it's all the synoptics, but nothing did he speak to them in parables. Everything was in parables or something to that extent. It's almost as if to say, now listen, the, the way it's being said is more important, if not at least as important as what's being said. So right. pay attention and give measure to how you hear. And of course, Jesus did say that. So I think that'd be my closing remark. Um, the, the medium is an important part of the message itself. Yeah, I would add to that. Uh, somebody wrote to C.S. Lewis. He has this thick volume of letters. It takes three volumes. People wrote mm -hmm. him spiritual questions. And one of them wrote and said, why was Jesus always talking over people's heads? And Lewis said, I don't think that's what was happening. I think he knew that if he made an intellectual proposition that would meet, that would meet with intellectual resistance and it would be this versus this. Mm -hmm. But if he planted a thought in their minds through a story or an image or a metaphor, that might stay in their minds longer in their imaginations and it might bear fruit later on. Mm. So I love the idea that uh, Jesus didn't necessarily talk over people's heads. Mm. He said things that made them think a lot longer than they would have thought if he just stated a, a, a proposition. I think sure. I'm restating what you just said a second ago. No, no, it's, it's again, just kind of proving a point is that we, we, uh, we have different ways of narrating truth and it's the same truth, but it, it, it comes to people different ways. Right. And it's, it's very profound. Yeah, we, we get to experience and kind of taste reality when we, we, uh, we engage in a story rather than just to digest a proposition. It's like, you know, uh, it's like a math equation. It's, it's this equals that. It's very simple. Right. Right. So I think it's well said. Well, and the more you read something, oh, now she presses the card with the princess music <laughs> right when I am here. <laughs> It's perfect. It's perfect. A little closing music for you all. Um, yes. The more that you read a story, the more you get out of it. And, and stories are so powerful. And and I just think that, you know, for people who aren't Christian, but, you know, so many people love reading that mm. to find Christ, to not even know you're finding him yet, but the more you come back to him, the more you realize, hmm, there's something about that I can't quite put my finger mm -hmm. on. Yep. Um, I just think it's so great that there's so many authors out there doing, like you were saying, different methods of kind of presenting Christ to people just to, to leave it with them thinking about it and coming back to it and wanting more. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yes. And I think uh, the next episode will be how to be an apologist mom and uh, <laughs> how to, how to manage your time when, when four-year-olds won't sleep. Uh, super, super Sarah episode, special edition. It's going to be the next one. So we're going to interview you about how you, how are you sleeping these days? It's like the one night. I'm like the one night, Annabelle, I really need you to go to bed is the one night you're up. Oh, it's going to be the greatest episode yet, though. I, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you. Like, eh, the Downing's Chahosky, who cares? You know, what's that little girl doing? Yeah. So funny. Well, this has been great. Um, Crystal, did you have something you wanted to say? I'm sorry. No, just okay. thank you. Thank you. This has been great, guys. Thank you for sharing your time. I know uh, basketball's on and enjoy the rest of your evenings. And uh, everybody, uh, thank you so much for joining all five great. of us. Really enjoyed yeah. this conversation. Yes, thanks, Michael. Great. Thanks, thank Sarah. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Say thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>